Growing up, before I was ever a Christian, one of the first things I ever remember a pastor saying over and over again is said, boy, if you can't preach after that, something's wrong with you. Let's open up our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And as you do, I wonder in your life who has been or is a role model to you. Uh, If you played sports, maybe there was a particular athlete, you imitated his swing or her jump shot or his workout routine, maybe you listened to them talk about the sport, you read what they wrote about the sport, whatever it is. Maybe in your career, whose example of of leadership or decision-making or work ethic shapes yours, whose wisdom and voice and teaching really has your ear. We have role models in all kinds of things, but I'm wondering in your walk with Christ, whose pattern of life, whose godliness, whose prayers, whose encouragement does the Lord use in your life? Who is it that God uses you and cha- uses in your life and challenges you to grow and to press on, to suffer well? Maybe they show you what it looks like to live for Christ, what it sounds like to speak the truth in love. Who is it that you would point to as an example? Just take a second and think about that. Just think of one or two. In Timothy's life, it was the life and words and ministry of the Apostle Paul. Today we're going to pick up where we left off, which is actually in verse 11 of chapter 1. It's the middle of a sentence, which is odd, especially if you weren't here last week or didn't hear last week. But we're going to start reading in verse 8 and read right through to the end of the chapter. And then we'll consider, and then we'll pray, and then we'll consider what Paul says. So beginning in verse 8, this is what the Spirit of God says through the Apostle Paul. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed." And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, 
for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you will teach us what we know not, that you will give us what we have not, that you will make us what we are not by the power of your Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So you'll remember that last week in verses 8 to 10, Paul's exhortation to Timothy, his call is to not be ashamed of the gospel, to not be ashamed of gospel ministry or those who do gospel ministry, but instead to share in suffering for the gospel by the power of the gospel. And today, Paul goes on from that to encourage Timothy in the hard road of not being ashamed of the gospel, the hard road of suffering for the gospel. And from these words, from the rest of these words, I take that we should glean that faithful ministry encourages faithful ministry. Faithful ministry encourages faithful ministry. God intends that our faithful ministry should be nurtured and strengthened and spurred on by the faithful ministry of others, and He intends that our faithful ministry will encourage and will spur on the faithful ministry of others. And we see how this happens as Paul goes on here from verses 11 to 18. Well, how is it that faithful ministry encourages faithful ministry? First, by example. By example. Now, in these eight verses, there are actually two examples of faithful ministry. The first is Paul. Paul, in verse 11, says he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. As an apostle, Paul is a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. He's been sent by God to carry that gospel. He's used by God to write 13 letters in the New Testament, including the one that we're reading, all as God's messenger, as God's sent one to the world and especially to His church. And each of these letters communicates God's truth to us. He is a vehicle, as it were, of God's revelation of Himself to us as an apostle. As a preacher, he preaches the good news of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. His ascension, His coming again, He goes into towns and He seeks to convince people that they need to turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And through that preaching, people are saved, and the church is established from city to city, as you read it in the book of Acts. But not only that, Paul is a teacher. He teaches doctrine. He teaches in order… you'll notice that after Paul goes through and he establishes the church, he doesn't just say, well, I'm just a preacher. I'm just here to establish the church. You'll notice that there are times that even in some of the hardest places where he's been, you know, people are threatening to stone him and running him out of town, he turns around to go right back in there in order to teach so that the church is strengthened, so that church leadership is established. He teaches these things, 
And in his letters in particular, he teaches us, doesn't he? He often teaches us that what, how believing in Jesus shapes living for Jesus. Now, all of that is fine, but here's the question I have. Why is Paul telling Timothy all of this? Did you ever stop to ask that question? Wasn't Timothy with him when he was doing some of this? Didn't he travel with him? Didn't he know he was an apostle? In fact, if Timothy had just read the opening of the letter, he would see that Paul is an apostle, even if it had escaped his memory. Paul was with him when he preached. Paul was with him when he taught. He received the teaching himself. Why would Paul say this? Well, the reason why he says these things, I believe, is because all of these three titles are tied directly to the gospel. Because Paul is not just an a preacher. He is a gospel preacher. You know there are many kinds of preachers, right? Messages are being preached all the time. Paul is a gospel preacher. There are many kinds of teaching, but Paul is a gospel teacher. There are many people who think they're sent, but Paul is a gospel apostle. And so he connects these things, and he wants Timothy to know that he's not alone. He says, uh, verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. He's not suffering just for the titles. He's suffering because these titles mean he is an ambassador of the gospel just like Timothy is. He's saying, I suffer too, Timothy. But it's interesting. He says, for which I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. Now compare that. Look back up at verse 8. Paul says this to Timothy. Do not be ashamed, but suffer. Here, he says, I suffer, but I am not ashamed. Here's what strikes me about that. Isn't it possible in life to, to launch out with great zeal in something? Isn't it possible that as a new believer, you're like completely pumped up and you're just like, you're sharing the gospel with anybody and everybody. If that, you know, if that person will just stand still for 30 seconds, I'm getting started, Right? It's possible to come back from the truth for youth camp, right? Or any camp. I've saw it as a youth pastor for 10 years, to come back from some experience that you've had all fired up, right? You are ready to go. And then the moment that opposition comes or suffering begins or discouragement sets in, it's possible that the one who sets out with great zeal could become ashamed think I thought this was going to go a lot different than this. I thought because I had such a great experience and because I'm on fire now, nothing like this would happen. And so the friends that you thought would listen to you push you away instead. The, the church that you thought would love the truth. It's possible for young men to go off to seminary thinking, I'm going to change the entire scope of the church world and to launch out and preach as if that's exactly what they're doing. But then the church that you thought would love the truth ends up attacking you in, instead of embracing you. At some point along the way, it's possible for one 
a person to become ashamed, to fear man rather than to fear God, to seek man's approval, which is what shame in this situation does. Shame in this situation is I become drawn back and I hide my face and I blush about all this because you disapprove of me. That's what shame is when it comes to being ashamed of the gospel. But one can begin to seek the approval of man rather than the approval of God. They can stop sharing the gospel. They can stop preaching the gospel. They could modify the gospel so that the room is much fuller with people who are eager to hear me and pat me on the back once we are done. Paul's telling Timothy, I didn't do that. I began to suffer. I'm suffering now. I'm in the prison. If you were here, you'd hear the chains clanking. But I'm not ashamed. You're not alone in this, Timothy. But what gives Paul such confidence? He goes on in verse 12 to say this. Why is he not ashamed? For I know whom I have... Now I'm going to read the ESV and then we'll talk about it for just a second. For I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Now, the reason that Paul has confidence is because he knows something about God not because he feels particularly prepared or gifted or that he's grown to the next level, whatever that is. You ever hear people talking about going to the next level? I don't always know what they mean by that. Paul doesn't look for the next level or he doesn't look in the mirror. He looks up at the Lord and he says, I know God. It's interesting when God calls Moses and Moses is stumbling around, like right? And he's saying, well, God, I'm not very good at this. I can't talk. I can't do this. It's interesting that God says, don't you worry about it. You'll be talking smooth before you know it. I'm just going to zap you. He doesn't say, now, Moses, uh, you need to remember your upbringing because, you know, you are, you are enough Hebrew to represent the Hebrews, and you're enough of an Egyptian brought up in Pharaoh's household to really represent Pharaoh before, uh, to, to represent the people before Pharaoh, to know how the court works, to know all that. God doesn't do any of that. Do you know what God says? I will be with you. He doesn't tell him he's going to stop stuttering. He doesn't tell him he's going to become a great orator. He says, I'm with you. I will be with you. Can I tell you something? More than any gift that I could have, more than any ability, more than any growth in teaching or preaching or pastoring, more than anything else, this is what I want to know. The Lord is with me. In your life, more than anything that God may bless you with in your life, no matter how your kids are going this way or that, no matter how the career is going, no matter how the, the, the COVID situation is affecting your work and your life and all of those things, the thing, the thing that will get you through is not knowing about you, but knowing God, knowing that He is with you. Now, at the end of verse 12, there is this discussion about what it is that is entrusted to the Lord. Uh, I think the context actually dictates that Paul is speaking of himself being entrusted to the Lord rather than the other way around. If you have the ESV, there should be a footnote that says it could be the other way around. It, should, it could be or what I have entrusted to him. I think that's actually the better way to take it. Um, 
which goes along with almost every other translation, English translation of the Bible. The ESV translators did not consult me when, talking, when looking at this, so I gave no input here. I'm just telling you what I've come to. Because what I understand is that Paul's example is not that I know that God is able to guard the gospel that has been entrusted to me, though He is. In talking about not being ashamed and suffering well for the gospel, Paul is saying to Timothy, I know the God who will guard me because I have entrusted myself to Him. It is wonderful and it is glorious. He was entrusted to the Lord. Can't you just see him? In the, just, just, just picture Paul sitting on, sitting on the floor of his cell, and he's got chains clanging, and he's got his hands lifted, and he's singing, He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Though I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. I, I could never keep my hold through this fearful path, for my love grows often cold. He must hold me fast. He is confident that the God who has brought him this far will not fail to take him the rest of the way. He would also sing, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far. This grace will lead me home." And friend, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, He will do it for you. If you have entrusted yourself to God, He will hold you fast as well. Nothing will be able to snatch you out of His hand. So Paul is an example. He's an example of what it means to trust the Lord in the midst of suffering and not being ashamed but being confident in the Lord. But Paul points to another example. He points to Onesiphorus. Uh, there in verse 15. Those among us who are pregnant, this would be a great name to revive. If you have a boy, Onesiphorus, we'll just call him Oni. I actually did know uh, an older woman in the church that we served up in Marion, a very godly, godly woman named Oni. Uh, she was a wonderful lady. I don't think she was named for Onesiphorus, uh, but there you go. Now, so he points to Onesiphorus. Paul had taken, in verse 15, he talks about everyone turning away in Asia. Paul had taken the gospel to Asia, and many had believed. You remember that? In, in, in Acts, it says that. The whole, all of Asia has heard, which is uh, Western Turkey in modern days. But all of Asia has heard. And many have believed. But now they're turning away. And Paul's saying, but not Onesiphorus. He's refreshed me. Look at verse 15. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now, that word refreshed is a word that speaks of catching your breath, of recovering from the effects of heat, all right? So just imagine you are out working in, in the heat of the day, all sticky and gross, and you are sweating like crazy, and your energy is draining, and you finally need a break after three or four minutes, and so you go, you open the door, and you go inside, and you feel the whoosh of that air conditioning, and you kind of breathe it in, and you pause to thank God for air conditioning. Onesiphorus was that whoosh of cool air 
in Paul's face. In the midst of dark days, he refreshed the apostle. And he isn't ashamed. Did you hear that? He isn't ashamed of my chains. In fact, he runs toward Paul rather than running away. Look at verse 17. When he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. This means he is turning over every rock. He is asking everyone he can find to find out where Paul is. He doesn't just show up in Rome and he says, well, um, I don't see him anywhere. I tried No, Onesiphorus is a dedicated man. He is going to go to any person that will give him any favor to get him near Paul so that he can be that refreshing ministry to him. That's what he does. But what's really striking about Onesiphorus, you know what really strikes me? These are the only verses we have about him except for Paul making sure Timothy greets his family at the end of the letter. What a legacy! To be remembered, to be noted by the Spirit of God that he's unashamed of the gospel, and he's a refreshing influence to those who serve the Lord, that he is faithful in ministry. Friends, we need this kind of example, don't we? We need this kind of barely named example for us because most of our names and most names in general will be forgotten, just like Onesiphorus. But what a joy to know that we may be forgotten here, but God will not forget us. That the things done in faithful ministry, not being ashamed even if it's not ever seen, is seen by the Lord, and He will reward. In fact, Paul knows he can never repay Onesiphorus. He's not even getting out of this jail. So he can never repay Onesiphorus, so he prays that the Lord will instead. Look at verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. And in verse 18, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Paul lifts him up as an example of ministry, of faithful ministry. Examples are wonderful, powerful gifts from God, aren't they? This is a helpful word. Let me just speak for a moment to those of you who are older in the faith. Those of you who may feel like you're walking into the sunset of life. Your example of perseverance and ministry and serving others with whatever capacity and ability and opportunity you have is an incredibly important example for those who come behind you. Don't you dare feel like you just need to be put out to pasture, you need to be put on cruise control till the end. That is not the case. We desperately need you as an example. That's how God works. God gives us examples. You could be that. I think of Glenn Lockwood, pastor here for 25 years, all right? His voice and the clarity of his thought never failed to the very end. He was so committed to preaching in the interim time before, I ca- before you called me to be your pastor that he would, and he, was, he wanted to preach from here. His body was failing, but he wanted to preach from 
here. So Jim, wherever you are, Jim Wise, Jim and others would help him up these stairs to get to this pulpit so that he could preach. And when he couldn't preach here, you know what he was dedicated to still doing? Preaching. So he would drive his chair right over here to a, po to a podium right in front of him, and he would preach. And the preaching was fantastic. The example that I take from that is he would do anything to still be serving the Lord. Not months before, all the elders sat in his living room and were speaking to him. And every time I spoke to him, he wanted to know how he could still serve the Lord. He, still, he was still looking back on his life saying, I wish I'd done this differently. I wish I'd done that differently. I just want to serve the Lord well to the end. Boy, we need that example, don't we? And we don't just need it from pastors. We need it from every single person in the church. Every single person. Don't give up contributing to faithful ministry by being an example. So Paul gives him an example, but also Paul, uh, faithful ministry encourages faithful ministry by exhortation, not just by example. These exhortations are words that call us to action. And here Paul calls Timothy to not give up, to keep going. Look at verses 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Those are the two commands, the two exhortations. Follow and guard. Follow the pattern. That's the first one, and it is personal. It is personal. Paul's words, his teaching are a pattern. They are like the architect's drawing of what it means to build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, Timothy, I've handed you the pattern. Now you build the life. I've handed you this. You need to follow the pattern. Hold on to it. Don't let it slip. Don't let it slip in what you think and how you speak and how you live. Don't deviate from the plan. No matter what plan culture puts forward, follow the pattern. No matter how alone you feel in following the pattern, follow the pattern. No matter what opposition you face, follow the pattern. Shame would have you put aside the pattern to do something else, but don't you dare do it. And Timothy, just know this, it's not just that you follow the pattern of, of the words, of the teaching. It's how you follow it that matters. He says that, doesn't he? He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard in me, heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Friends, the Christian life shouldn't simply be marked by a knowledge of sound doctrine, though you should cling to and know sound doctrine. We as Christians are not meant to just be rigid in our orthodoxy, and that is the thing that defines us. That's the only thing that defines us. In fact, it's interesting, the one thing that Jesus said was going to define us as His disciples as we go about in the world is our love for one another. Now, that love is both patterned and mediated by sound doctrine, which teaches us what it means to love. And this is love, not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave Himself up for us. As I have loved you, Jesus said, so you should love one. There's the pattern, right? Follow the pattern. So we don't just, we're not just rigid. We're not to be rigid. In fact, some of the worst Christians to interact with are those who are only rigid and don't even act like they believe what they're saying. 
They show no love for anyone else. We must follow the pattern in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul tells Timothy. That's how his ministry is encouraging Timothy's. The second exhortation is public, and it's in verse 14. It's the second half. Guard the good deposit. As Timothy serves the Lord, he's been entrusted with the gospel through Paul's preaching and teaching. And now Timothy must guard the good deposit. I couldn't help but think of the way, you know, coaches would talk in basketball. If you're facing your defender right in front of you, you don't do this, right? (laughs) You don't put the ball right out in front of them. I did that long enough that I knew you didn't do that anymore. You don't just hold it out there. You just swat it, take it away, do whatever with it. You You take it here. So you are guarding that ball. I mean, on a wedding day, people come forward, and the best man is given two rings, right? He's given these rings, and they come forward. And at some point in the ceremony, the one, the officiant, the pastor, is going to say, may I have the rings? And do you know the best man's only job there? This is why he's the best. It's because he is going to pass along in the same condition these precious treasures that he's been given. And Paul says to Timothy, pass along in the same condition the precious treasure that you've been given in the gospel. Guard it. Guard it with all your might. Guard it with your life. No matter how much comes against you, guard it. Now, some will try to add to the gospel. Some will try to take away from the gospel in the name of relevance, in the name of being acceptable or palatable. They'll do it privately, quite frankly, to justify their own sin. They'll do it publicly to gain a following, to sell more books, to, build a, to, to, to be more acceptable to the world. But Paul looks squarely at Timothy, and right behind Timothy, we're standing there, and Paul is looking straight at us, and he says, don't you do it. Guard the good deposit. Don't let it shift or change a bit. Because, Timothy, this gospel isn't yours. It's not yours to do with as you please. You've been entrusted with it. It's God's gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any shifting, any changing makes it not the gospel, Galatians 1. And what the world needs is the gospel and not your version of the gospel, which is not the gospel at all. Because there is no other gospel that will save. There is no other gospel that will radically transform a life. None. This gospel, so guard it. Finally, in these exhortations, not only is the first one's private, the second one's public, but both are possible. Both are possible. Timothy can follow the pattern. He can guard the good deposit as long as he doesn't try to do it on his own. All right? Verse 14, by the Spirit who indwells us. By the Spirit. Now, certainly we are responsible to obey. We must open our mouths with the gospel. We must train ourselves to think right. We must walk by faith and not by sight. We must 
not be ashamed. We must share in suffering. We must follow the pattern. We must guard the gospel. But the only way that we can do that, the only way we can work out our salvation, Philippians 2, is because God works within us to will and to do His good pleasure. But because God is within us to work and to do His good pleasure, it is possible. To paraphrase Jay Adams, for the Christian, it is not a matter of can you. It is only a matter of will you. It's not a matter of can you follow the pattern. Can you guard the gospel? Can you suffer for the gospel by the power of the gospel? Can you live a life not ashamed of Jesus? The only question is will you? That's it. Now, look, as we think about this, it's very interesting. I mean, he's basically saying that, 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 that the power to do anything in the Christian life comes from the Holy Spirit. We must walk by faith, but every step we take is empowered by the Holy Spirit, every single one of them. But it's not just walking along in the Christian life that is this way. It's becoming a Christian that is this way. You see... On our own, we really have no way of pleasing God. We have no capacity to do that. Doing good, being here, faithfully watching the live stream, faithfully giving, seeking to do this or that that is good, this earns us zero credit with God. In fact, God says all of those things are just like filthy rags before Him. The path to being right with God is a path forged by the Holy Spirit. You see, you can't make yourself right. If you just even think about it for just a second, you can't make yourself right with God. You can't atone for your own sin. You can't make up for it. You see, if you could, you know what would be true? Jesus would have died for nothing. If you can make yourself right with God, then the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a waste but friend, it's not. He died because we could do nothing about it, and because God, who is rich in love and rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ. God loved the world in this way. That's what so loved means in John 3, 16. This is how God showed His love for the world. He sent His only Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish. He died to take the penalty for our sin. He died to take God's wrath in our place so that we would be forgiven and made right with God. So in the end, you see, you can be forgiven. You can be made right with God right now. Call out to Him for mercy. If you're watching by live stream in your living room, call out to Him for mercy. You need not be here to connect with God. He is with you. He is near you. His Word is coming to you. Call out to Him for mercy, for grace. Ask Him to change you by the power of His Spirit. Seek Him while He may be found. You see, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And when the Spirit works, it's not just that you can be right with God. Let me tell you this. This is great news. When the Spirit works, it's not just that now I'm able to be right with God. When the Spirit actually works, you will be right with God. You will be forgiven. You will be counted righteous. 
You will have a home in heaven waiting. You will have hope through everything in this world that tosses and just shifts and nothing is settled here, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, that will be settled. And because that will be settled, then you can actually get through his life. So the question, my friend, is will you turn to him? Will you call out to him? Will you humbly acknowledge that you can't do it? Will you seek the Lord today? I would love nothing else but to stand six feet away from you with my mask on and tell you how you can be made right with Jesus and to pray with you after this service. Nothing would give me greater joy today than to see one move from the darkness to the light, from death to life. If you're watching by live stream, reach out. I would love nothing more than to talk about it. Faithful ministry encourages faithful ministry. It encourages faithfulness by example. It encourages faithful ministry by exhortation. My prayer is that the Spirit of God will use these words so that we are faithful in ministry, that Paul's example and Paul's exhortation urge us on. But not only that, that God would work in us in such a way that we are faithful in ministry and that our faithful ministry will encourage the faithful ministry of those around us and those who come behind us. Let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are for examples in our lives, for those who walk faithfully and teach faithfully and show us what it means to know and love and follow and serve you. How we thank you for this text, for Paul's example, for the example of Onesiphorus. How we thank you for the reminder that we can follow the pattern of sound words, that we can guard the good deposit of the gospel, but only as we rely upon the Spirit. Father, we pray that you will work in us, that you will give us grace, that by your Spirit we will, in fact, be faithful, that the words of the song that's familiar to many of us would be true, that all who come behind us would find us faithful that the light of our devotion would light their way, that the footprints that we leave would lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. May all who come behind us find us faithful. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.